the Intersection Education Podcast. Schools are the place where different institutions, services, and societal influences meet. In other words, they're at the intersection of children's lives. In the Intersection Education Podcast, we speak with insiders and outsiders of the education world to try to gain new insight and improve our schools. Welcome to the Intersection Education Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Haley. Today we're speaking with Etienne Mustis Lafferty. Etienne was born and raised in Grand Prairie, Alberta, and her family is from the Sturgeon Lake Cree Nation in Treaty 8 territory. Etienne has teaching experience both on and off reserve, and also in public and Catholic school systems. She spent four years working for an Indigenous Perspective School with the Calgary Board of Education, where she learned the importance of culture and language in Indigenous education. Echenna was called back to Amiskwachiwasikan, or Edmonton, and has worked provincially as an Indigenous education consultant, helping to develop and implement professional development sessions aimed at promoting reconciliation through teacher education. Echenna has created resources for many provincial organizations which help teachers better understand topics such as residential schools, myths and stereotypes of Indigenous people, progression of the TRC, digging into the TQS and LQS, applying and developing about First Nation, Métis and Inuit people, and finally, treaty relationships. Today, Echenna works part-time consulting and is also the Indigenous education coach for Evergreen Catholic Schools. She's completing her master's at the University of Alberta and additionally has worked as an assistant researcher. Now, if you like what you're hearing, connect with us, Intersection Education. You can go to our website, intersectioneducation.com, follow us on Twitter at Intersection Ed, or even on Facebook, and we really appreciate it when you rate us on iTunes and leave a review. Here's my conversation with Etienne Mustas Lafferty. Hello, Etienne Mustas. How are you today? I'm great. How are you? Thanks for having me. Oh, I'm, I'm doing well as well. And I just want to thank you so much for, for being on today and for talking to us about uh, Indigenous education and reconciliation. And I really do want to get into there right away. Mm -hmm. uh, this concept of reconciliation between Indigenous and non-Indigenous people in Canada is, is really complex and, and I think still developing. Now, when you think of reconciliation in the context of Canada, and or maybe even in the context of any other um, colonized country, what are some of your thoughts? Well, I'm kind of getting at what does reconciliation mean to you? Mm -hmm. um, oh, there's so many levels. It's so varied, and it, like you said, it's very complex. But I, I think about the the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's definition of that. And uh, what they define reconciliation is, is creating and maintaining mutually respectful relationships between non-Indigenous and Indigenous people in Canada. So you also have to question what that relationship looks like now. Is it broken? Why is it broken? How do I mend it? So maybe reconciliation is about, is about healing. Um, also in similar TRC literature, you'll see the four A's of reconciliation. I don't know if you've seen it, but there's a book called A Knock at the Door. And 
their, their four A's of reconciliation is awareness of the past, acknowledgement of the harm that was done, atonement for the causes, and action to change. And so all of those, they believe strongly that all of those things need to happen in order for us to reconcile or get to a place of, of reconciliation. And so that's, that's their definition. You may have seen the leadership quality standards definition, which is pretty heavy. I have. Um, it's a lot to look at. It's pretty heavy. Uh, but I always, always, and some people have heard me maybe tell this story, but I always go back to when I started some of the work provincially as an Indigenous education consultant. And I was going up to my hometown, Grand Prairie, and I was so excited. And we we were starting these like elder councils. And we wanted to create a community of elders and knowledge keepers who would guide us in this work as we're creating sessions and resources for teachers. And I had put together and, and asked all these elders to come, and my grandma included, uh, who's a residential school survivor. And I'm sitting in this room, and I have my presentation ready, and I'm using hashtag reconciliation like crazy at this time. And I'm, I'm preaching to them about reconciliation and education for reconciliation. And I'm so excited and, and I'm going on and on and on and I just see blank stares, right? And so this one elder kind of puts up his hand and stops me and, and I said, yeah, yeah, what is it? Uh, what would you like to share? And, and he said, reconciliation. Isn't that great? We have a lot of healing to do. Mm-hmm. And, kind of stopped me in my tracks. I kind of thought, wow, this is not going anywhere like I thought it was going to go. I had envisioned this this beautiful journey. And what he said really stuck with me. I needed to understand that reconciliation is a little messy and it involves a lot of the truth. And the truth is, is that we have individuals and whole communities that are still healing from you know, residential schools and assimilative policies and, and all of those, uh, you know, economic, social, political implications of residential schools. So reconciliation to some people is really about healing. And some people are not ready to go on that journey of reconciliation because there's so much work to do in community. Um, so I always go back to that story and I use the hashtag reconciliation less because I really need to understand it fully before I start, um, you know, preaching it like in that way. Um, when I think about reconciliation and I, and I look at the, you know, my grad studies and a lot of the literature, um, you may have heard of indigenous resurgence, um, I have, yes. Yeah, so a little bit. Yeah, so indigenous resurgence is exactly exactly that. It's for indigenous people and so it looks like indigenous people lifting other indigenous people up into, you know, self-sustaining places, places where we feel proud again, where whole nations are sovereign and we're reclaiming our culture, we're claiming our our language, our ceremony and and you know the the role of the woman and and all of those beautiful things. So resurgence is kind of um the opposite of reconciliation in a way. It's it's not so much about building relationships, but it's reconnecting. So maybe it's building relationship with the land again, uh, with our family, with our with our, you know, our own people. So resurgence as reconciliation is an interesting concept too. So when I think of reconciliation, I there's it's so multi-layered. And when I work with teachers and we talk about reconciliation, and we've done this several times, we really get them to unpack that. 
So instead of, you know, saying, you know, let's go on a journey to reconciliation. Well, what does that mean to you personally? Mm -hmm. But then what might it look like as a, as a school, as a whole school? What is your vision for reconciliation? Because how are we going to get to one place if we all have different versions of what that might be? Yeah. Yeah. And, And that's, I think what I was getting at, I mean, my thoughts when I was asking that question is, yeah, I do think that we have different and varied visions and, and, and understandings of what reconciliation is. And what mm-hmm. I heard from you most clearly is that it's a process. Mm-hmm. And we oftentimes get so focused on the end goal. And, and we'll get there. We'll, we'll maybe talk about that end goal a little bit later. But ultimately, the process of reconciliation is going to be what gives us a good end result yes that healing exactly the information the understanding yeah that's what i'm hearing from you and i really appreciate that well and and justice murray sinclair commissioner from uh, the trc said it took us seven generations to get to this point it's going to take us seven generations to get out so we might not see an end goal we're going to see the process and we're going to be a part of the process but we might not see what that looks like and a lot of educators have said so what does it look like and how do we know when we get there mm-hmm. right we might we might not see it unfortunately but we're going to be so entrenched in that beautiful process which is exciting for me do you know what let let's let's go there let let's um let's kind of goal cast or let's foresee let's let's look seven generations down down the road Let's say we're successful with creating society where all people are respected, where this idea of reconciliation has happened and the process of reconciliation has gone. What do you think that looks like? Mm-hmm. What does it look like in, in seven generations? And, and, and we don't have to have a fully clear vision of all the, the details, but what do you think some of those, or maybe what are your hopes mm-hmm. for some of those potential outcomes? I think um, what that might look like is teachers or school leaders engaging and and really building and maintaining those relationships with the Indigenous community, people in community, people in their cities. Um, But I think that whole maintaining part is really crucial. I think it might look like um, educators reclaiming concepts of Indigenous knowledge or or starting to reclaim the things that the education system has taken away. So reclaiming that, that land relationship and reclaiming language, even though we're not fluent speakers, um, bringing in people, learning from the wisdom that exists in the land where we currently are. Um, I think it would, and this is really important to me, is that I think it would look like schools um, doing less of the surface level learning, like, you know, beads and bannock and, and, and buffalo, uh, which is okay. I think it's okay to be there as a starting point, but it would look like going away less and less from that and really digging deeper into Indigenous knowledge systems, understanding more and having a um, confidence in the in foundational knowledge as as defined by the TQS. And I think it would look like teachers changing their classrooms to be more inspired by Indigenous ways of learning, um, circle, circle processes, but having people in who are not uh, certified teachers, but who share their wisdom um, with the students in our classrooms. Yeah. That's a, that's a hard one. So I, I appreciate you sharing because it's, 
yeah, it is going to take a long time. And, and I think that we, we can get caught up on the minutia. So I, I really like your idea yeah. of just, you know, more generalized understanding, getting away from that surface and mm-hmm. into that deep level understanding. So I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things that, that I think uh, I'm a little bit jealous of is you get to visit a whole lot of schools and that's really exciting to me. And I'm sure that there are some schools that are really living this idea of reconciliation and it shows probably in how they operate mm-hmm. and what they do. And um, I was wondering if you had some of those actions that you've seen that schools are taking that, that really speak to your vision of reconciliation or that schools that are looking for some inspiration, they're looking for, okay, what are maybe the next steps or the first steps that, that you would recommend that they do to, to bring reconciliation to life at schools? Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing I heard recently by a lady named Roberta Jameson who works with Inspire Canada, uh, she had mentioned that this is going to take a lot of resources, but mostly dollars, Right, so reconciliation will um, will mean a commitment to spend dollars and funding on resources, and not just not just book resources, but people resources. Mm-hmm. So that's where some of the dollars are spent, but also in that is included um, would be the time that we allow teachers to mm-hmm. learn. So setting aside time, getting subs in, so teachers can could sit together in PLCs in a sprint sort of format and talk about things that they want to learn or talk about their concerns, talk about their goals. And so that's the beauty of this work is that time is really essential. Mm-hmm. And when we put the time, when we put the dollars and the resources into teacher professional development, we see major, major gains in that. Uh, I love looking at bulletin boards. This is why I love going to schools, but I love looking at bulletin boards and seeing where is Indigenous education living and breathing in your school and where is the evidence that it's happening? So whether it be bulletin boards or with the way that certain teachers are teaching, um, I love seeing that. I have a five-year-old now, she's in kindergarten, and I walk into the school and I think, okay, where's the evidence, right? That's what I'm looking for now, not not just as an Indigenous educator, but now as a parent. Mm-hmm. What what am I looking for? Where's the evidence that Indigenous education is happening? So, so many beautiful things from bulletin boards to the time that teachers spend together, um, to learning together, sitting in circle, going on river walks, uh, inviting new people in, and and bringing in an aspect of, of learning that that is aside from the standard PD sit and sit and get sort mm-hmm. of seminar. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, uh, the time. What I'm hearing from you is yeah, that time is a big thing having the personalized learning experience mm-hmm. for teachers where they're at. Uh, sometimes it, it is less important what they're doing, but it, it means if it's meaningful to them, it's meaningful to their work with reconciliation mm-hmm. and that they actually have that time to right. make it happen. Yeah. Yeah. Now I've got a little bit of a question for you and you may have slightly answered this already. And, and, and a lot of times I ask questions that, that are things that we're working on at our school. And as I look at schools where reconciliation has really taken hold and all this work has been done, I often find that they are schools where there's a high percentage of Indigenous students. Um, 
But that's not really my reality. And I don't think it's actually the reality for many schools around, not just Alberta, but Canada or mm-hmm. Australia or anything like that. And, and do you have any tips or advice for schools that want to forward the work of reconciliation, of understanding um, and decolonization and Indigenous issues, but they don't really have that high percentage of Indigenous students or even a lot of contact with, with Indigenous people. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that's one thing I think that could, could really help out. I know our school and many schools around who are similar to us. When you're dealing with, not dealing with, when you, when you have a, just a population who are interested, but, but having that contact or even having that front of mindness is, is perhaps more difficult. Yeah. It's interesting because I see an influx of teachers who are not Indigenous who are engaging in the work in really meaningful ways, despite the fact that their population of Indigenous students are very low. Um, That's what I see. I really, I'm really seeing a presence of, of teachers who are engaged and want to do the work despite that. I also look at the teacher quality standard and the leadership quality standard that does state it's for the benefit of all students. So, you know, three years ago, I may have heard, I don't, I don't have any Indigenous students in my class, so why, why are we doing this work? Well, first of all, how do you know? Uh, second, this is for everyone. This is not just for Indigenous students. And, and as an Indigenous person growing up in the public school system, I wish my teachers would have had that, that knowledge too. I, I wish my peers would have understood Indigenous people a little bit more. So... I see, I see a, a beautiful, uh, a, a healthy amount of, of teachers who are engaging in the work. Um, and, and perhaps, and I don't mean to interrupt you, but I think that maybe that's, that's part of the answer. Yeah. It's just having the, it's not authority, but it's just giving yourself the space to engage in the work, even if you're not an Indigenous person. Right. saying that it's okay and you can forward this have a meaningful part even but you don't need to be indigenous right you can be passionate about it yes and i'll hear it all the time so much fear from teachers so much fear and where does that come from and why are we so fearful we just don't want to offend we don't want to say the wrong thing and and you know my the one thing I always say is we're not asking you to teach culture. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not asking you to teach about drumming or speak Cree or Stony or, or we're not asking you to smudge with students. We're asking you to talk about indigenous history in truthful ways. We're talking, we're asking you to talk about indigenous people in positive ways. And we're asking you to be more aware and, and really highlighting indigenous existence in contemporary contexts. Mm-hmm. So we're 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 not asking you also to be experts. We really just want you to engage in truthful conversations with students. So if there's something that makes you uncomfortable or you're asked something, the simple answer is that's a great question. I'm really not sure. So a lot of this work, um, Sandra and I talk, Sandra Herbst and I talk about shaking hands with ambiguity, right? And this work is humbling because we as teachers feel we need to be the experts and we need to know everything, but it's okay that we don't. So in this, in Indigenous education, it's okay to say, I don't know, I'm learning too. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. Let's talk about education 
um, perhaps a little bit more generally, but it might come back to <laughs> indigenous um, topics. Is is there something about learning or about education that you believe is true? But when you bring it up, you get a bit of pushback on. Some people say, "No, you know, I don't. I don't actually agree with you on that." Mm-hmm. This could dep- the the answer could depend on who you're talking about, but I really do feel like there's a place for indigenous knowledge in education, mm. and more specifically, I'm talking about indigenous languages in education in public and Catholic school systems, um, aside from, you know, on reserve nation lands, education systems, there is a place for indigenous languages. And, and the reason I, I feel very strongly about that is I look back at the calls to action and many of them, <clears throat> sorry, many of them have to do with education, but some of them call, call specifically on the revitalization of indigenous languages. Mm-hmm. And um, that is my goal. Uh, it's one of my own personal calls to action is that I learn my own Cree language and that I engage in that in ways that are meaningful. But when I talk to teachers about using Indigenous languages in their school, they kind of feel, oh, wait, I'm not, I don't know, I don't know Cree. How am I supposed to use that in my school? And what I say is that I'm not asking you to be a fluent speaker. I'm not asking you to, um, you know, say, uh, prayer or greeting in Crete, although you can if you learn. I'm asking that you create an awareness for the languages so that we can revitalize them. So what that might look like is having the numbers one to ten in Cree at the top of your of your classroom, um, right next to the English words. What it might look like is that uh, after your land acknowledgement in the morning over announcements, you say, you know, Tanse Abawashted, good morning everyone, Miogisagao. It's a great day here in Treaty Six. Welcome everyone. Right. So using language in little ways, um, I always think about how they change the the name on Anthony Hende to Muskego Trail. And and there was a lot of pushback. And one of the city councillors said, uh, why don't they change it to a, a name we can all pronounce? And, uh, and, you know, there's a lot of eye rolling when I tell that story. But he's saying something, I guess, probably what everyone is thinking. I can't pronounce that. Mm-hmm. But we're trying to educate and build so much awareness in our students that in three, five, ten years from now, they say they see all these these boards and they see all these place names and they see those signs and they go, that's Cree. And I know that's Cree because I see it in my school or that's, that's Stony or that's Blackfoot. And I know it is because I see it in my school. So in small ways, we can start to revitalize indigenous languages. And not only that, uh, build a respect for languages, which is also in the teacher quality standard. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And I had a similar situation and story with, with exactly that, um, uh, place names or street names. Yes, yeah. And I looked at it completely the opposite way of my friend saying, oh, wow, what a great opportunity for us to learn more about Cree yeah. and, and to know more. It's going to kind of force us to to learn a bit more linguistically about Cree. What a great thing. And yeah, he, he had a more negative response. So it was interesting, even our two perspectives and our two <laughs> visions on that. You know what? I'm also interested in learning environments, places where we come to learn. And uh, more importantly, things that we can do or ways that we can promote learning. Mm -hmm. Now, when you think back to the best learning experiences that you've had, what was it about them that you think made them powerful? Was it people, places, activities? When you're thinking about the times when you 
feel like you learned the most or learned the best. What do you think contributed to that great experience? Mm-hmm. Um, if I just think to back to my own childhood experience, uh, any time a teacher brought up, you know, I'm sure at that time it was Indian or Native, I perked up and I was ready to listen because I thought, oh, wow, they're talking about my family or or me and I, I can relate to that. Um, so that's when, when I felt like I was included and I f- saw myself mirrored in the learning, I was very excited. Now, not all students are like that, but that's exactly how I was. If it had anything to do with Indigenous people or language or Cree or even story, I was very excited. Um, when I think about my whole experience and more closely like high school, I guess, I think about what, what, what was important for me was that feeling like I belonged. And it doesn't matter what kind of supports you have in place, what kind of parents you have, um, how much you love your teachers or school. It's not going to be a place where you want to be if you don't feel like you belong or you don't have friends. And so I was really lucky to have a lot of friends. And I think that's why I was at school all the time because of my friends. And so thinking as an educator, who are the Indigenous students in your school and who are their friends and how many? And if not a lot, why? Because if reconciliation is about relationships, then our role as educators is hopefully to help facilitate those relationships. We're trying to build little allies here, right? So um, I think that was really important for me as having friends and feeling like I, I belonged in the education system. And this was in, in Grand Prairie, Alberta. It yeah. reminds me of... Um of a saying that I, that I, that I heard around indigenous education and we have to, the saying was we have to start learning about indigenous people and we have to start learning with or from indigenous mm-hmm. people. And I think that that speaks to that relationships that, that you were speaking to. And yeah, if we don't have those relationships, if we don't actually interact, then, then probably learning is not going to be as powerful as it could be. Mm-hmm. Um, now there's a place where we can't always, you know, jump in and and do that but i think that we can do that more yeah. so i appreciate what you're saying there now the last general question that i have is um is whether you have a favorite failure or success and what i mean by favorite is something where it was either rather positive or negative that you reflect on and you recognize that you learned a really important lesson mm-hmm. in that moment and so it becomes almost like a little bit of a favorite failure or success mm-hmm. Oh, oh my goodness. I probably, there's probably a lot of, uh, opportunity. There was probably a lot of experiences that presented themselves as failures at <laughs> many points of my upbringing and, and professional uh, career. I, I think I always look back to my first year teaching, um, in a first nations community. And I always think if I, if I knew then what I know now, and I really think, I could have supported those the, the students that I was teaching so much better. But then I also think I'm going to come back to the same thought 5, 10, 30 years from now, right? I might look mm-hmm. at this podcast and think, oh, geez, if I would have, if I would have known then. Um, I also, for me, for me, I feel like I try to separate or find balance between the politics of education and my personal connection to it. 
And that's really, um, that's really difficult for me. I'm trying to find that separation or just even find that balance. And so Can you tell me more about that? What does that, what does that look like? The finding a balance between the politics of education and your personal connection to it. Can you maybe define that? As we know, education is very political, right? And some, uh, sometimes we as Indigenous people don't lead the work in, in meaningful ways. And again, this kind of goes back to resurgence in a way, right? Um, I've, I've just encountered, you know, a few um, experiences where I was, I'm really emotional. I feel like I'm so connected uh, personally to the cause and personally to Indigenous education that when it comes to politics and, and just accepting the way things are, it's very, it's difficult for me. So I'm learning, I'm learning to be humble. I'm learning to listen. I'm learning to find acceptance, but I'm also learning a lot about self-care and how important it is as an Indigenous person, an Indigenous woman doing this work, how important it is to take care of yourself, how do you connect to ceremony and other like-minded individuals who do this work sometimes alone. So um, it's really it's really good to have those friendships and those relationships. Yeah. I can imagine. And a, a great reminder for self-care. Do you have a favorite app, a favorite website, or maybe a film that you like to recommend to other people? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I could go on here. Um, but one of my favorite apps is the Cree Dictionary app or any language app, because this is really great is that uh, language revitalization is coming in the form of in coming in the form of technology, right? So I turn to the Cree app all the time. So if you find one of those, that's really helpful as an educator, if you're wanting to just put uh, the word respect up, for example, um, sometimes I'll get questions from teachers, is this the right way? And so I'll just, you know, sometimes say, yeah, just double check the app and you should be good to go. Uh, I love the app. Uh, aside from intersection education, <laughs> <laughs> a little plug there. <laughs> another, another great podcast is Think Indigenous. Hmm. Think Indigenous is a conference uh, that this year will be in Enoch again for the second year in the spring. And it's Indigenous education, it's scholarly, it's research, uh, it's very inspiring. And so you hear and see from the voices of many Indigenous people and what's happening sort of national at, at a national level. But what the all the keynotes and people that they have coming, they uh they record their mm their sessions. And so I enjoy listening to that as I drive. I think it's a great one. Um, anything by Richard Wagamese. I love Indigenous literature and authors. And uh, in fact, I've started hoarding all of the Indigenous literature that I can find because for me, growing up, I didn't have any of it. Mm -hmm. So now I feel like my daughter needs to have all the books in the world. And that's my go-to. But a website that's really great is Empowering the Spirit. Mm -hmm. And that was developed in Alberta, uh, actually right at the local consortia with, uh, you know, myself and, and many other passionate Indigenous educators. So we created many resources on foundational knowledge. There's videos there for you to watch. There's resources. There's literature kits. So, so that's a great place to go and um, a good place to start as an educator. That sounds great. Do you have a book that you like to uh, refer to or uh, send people to? Maybe you give it away. 
Oh, yeah. Um, anything decolonizing education, basically, I'm very <laughs> excited about. So Linda Smith, Glenn Coltard, uh, Leanne Simpson, Marie Batiste are some names to look at when you're thinking about decolonizing education or decolonizing classrooms. Uh, Sheila Cote Meek is one. I also like Paulo Freire, Pedagogy of the Oppressed, thinking about that kind of of literature. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's a good, that's a pretty good <laughs> list. Yeah, it'll keep me busy for a while, I think. Now, you talked about self-care, and I'd like to know, what's one thing that you do every day or most days mm-hmm. that keeps you well and healthy and available to do this important work? Um affirmations daily affirmations as i drive this is what i do i daily affirmations a lot of prayer um you know i don't smudge every single day but i smudge a lot that's really important to keep me keep me balanced keep me whole keep me healthy and uh a lot of hugging so i have like i mentioned i have a 5 year old so hugging her is one of the best medicines i can i can access now, is there an organization or a person that really inspires you? Hmm. Not one specific person, but I'm really, I'm really, really inspired when I see Indigenous people achieving high academic success, you know, becoming doctors. And But I'm equally inspired by knowledge keepers and elders, family members who, who push me and push others to to complete goals and to um, help others. So I think most of my work can be validated by my, my grandma, as I mentioned, she's a residential school survivor. And without her sharing her story, I wouldn't have become a teacher ever. And so this work is validated mostly by elders and community members. But I have some really great, amazing friends and allies who I work with who are really supportive. So um I'm just inspired by people who want to um, enter into good places together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, what's next for you? What are some of the questions or problems or projects that you're working on and, and maybe that we can expect to see from you in, mm. the, in the coming years, maybe months, maybe mm. be less than that? No. Oh. Okay, well, I first have to write a thesis. Finish <laughs> no that. No big deal. No hey? big deal. I'll just write that up. And then I, yeah, maybe a PhD. I want to write books. I want to continue helping teachers learn in whatever form that comes in. I'm really, I'm really interested recently in uh, increasing the amount of Indigenous teachers we have in our public school systems. It, Cass actually did a survey this year and less than 1% of teachers in Alberta are Indigenous. And that's a problem. You know, we need to have more Indigenous people. So, so um, you know, kids like me growing up have a role model and someone to look up to, but also so other students see that Indigenous people work in schools and not just in supporting roles, but in leadership roles. So I think I'm interested in in finding out ways we can do that uh, provincially. How do we increase the amount of Indigenous teachers coming into our schools? Love it. Yeah. Now, let's see people are interested in following along. How can people connect with you? Uh, my phone number is... No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on Twitter. So at Etienne Lafferty, uh, you'll find me there. So I look forward to... Uh, 
meeting more people and just hearing I what I share on Twitter is mostly Indigenous education things or anything about Indigenous education. So where I'm at, what's going on and, and articles I might see or podcasts, things like that. So yeah. So that's where they'll find me. And I and I follow you and I find it's a, a great resource for yeah, everything indigenous. I love it. You're a great follow. So thank you so much. Thank you for taking a little bit of time for speaking to to me and then to us. And uh, I just can't like I said, can't thank you enough for the work you do and for mm-hmm. the time that you've taken to to speak with us today. Well, mm-hmm. I'm I'm very uh, grateful that you that you asked me to be here. So thank you. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Intersection Education Podcast. Just a reminder that you can connect with us on our website, intersectioneducation.com, on Twitter, intersectioned, or leave a review on iTunes. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next time.